On today's episode, we talk about what it's like to reapply to clinical psychology multiple times and waitlist with special guest, Sasha. Hey, welcome back. I'm Cass and I'm the host of Clinically Psyched, the podcast aimed at helping you through the process of applying to clinical psychology grad programs, as well as normalizing things like rejections and reapplication, which is what today's episode will be about. If you weren't successful this year at getting admitted to a clinical psychology program, or any grad program for that matter, you are very much not alone. It's been an incredibly tough year when it comes to applications. You can refer to the pandemic panic episode to hear more about the reasons as to why. I've gotten quite a few emails about people feeling a little bit more validated by hearing about people who didn't make it in, rather than just hearing about those who strolled into the program with what seems like ease from an outsider's perspective. I am more than happy to share my own experiences of, you know, working incredibly hard to craft applications, gain research experience, do interviews, even make it to wait lists, and unfortunately have very little to nothing to show for it in the end. It can even look like people with less experience are getting in easier. The thing is, clinical psych acceptances are highly tailored to a specific supervisor's needs, and there is no way to know what special skills someone had that made them the best candidate for the job. And I know, resentment can definitely occur, but I won't judge you for that emotion. Instead, I really encourage you to look at why these feelings might be coming up and how we can practice some compassion for ourselves and for others. No two paths are alike, and comparison is truly a thief of joy. As an update, I know I previously said that I had been waitlisted for an amazing opportunity, and it was a total dream program with a supervisor who happens to be one of my research idols, but I'm sorry to say that I was first on the waitlist for their lab, but I didn't make it in. The PI unfortunately thought that I would get acceptances and might not choose their lab, which makes me feel like I didn't adequately stress that the school was my dream school, and it's a hard lesson to have learned. I've been quietly dealing with this loss for the past week, and it's a lot to process just how close I was this year and how I don't really have anything to show for it now. I'm feeling a lot better now. And I'll be talking a little bit um, about how I got to this better headspace later on, but wow, the gut-wrenching experience of waiting to hear if you've made it off a waitlist was something I had never experienced nor heard talked about before. I was so careful not to tell too many people about the interview itself in my personal life. Though not a superstitious person, I felt I had so little control when placed on the waitlist that I didn't want to jinx anything. Looking back, this seems so silly, but it really does feel like you're dangling when you're waiting to hear back, and there really isn't much you can do at all to change your situation. The most you can do is perhaps email the department, thanking them for letting you know about your status and reaffirming your interest in the program. I'm not sure how much that actually helps your case, but it feels like you've done something, which was a feeling that I was definitely starved for. So there I was, doing things like knocking on wood and not stepping on the cracks in the sidewalk, and I promise you, I really am a scientist. Realistically, it can be hard to know how much of a shot you've got. 
I know there are some schools that usually don't take anyone from their wait list, while others take up to one in five, 20% of them. Sometimes if your supervisor's choice says no, you'll get the spot. And other times, the spot will be given to a different professor's choice who hadn't gotten a place for a student initially. I'm happy I was impressive enough to have a PI consider me so heavily. That is a huge compliment and a boost to my ego. And it's somewhat of a win that I try to keep holding on to. But knowing I have to do it all over again next year, especially when this PI isn't accepting students, is a little bit less exciting. So this week, we're diving into the realm of that reapplication to clinical psych after an unsuccessful cycle. I've been there multiple times, and it's not an easy thing to go through. Not only does the initial feelings of rejection hurt, but there can be a little bit of a stigma about not getting into the program that makes people stay quiet about the number of attempts they have under their belt thus far. There can be this pressure to have the perfect path to the perfect position, with any struggling seen as weakness or quote-unquote proof that one isn't suited for the profession. Of course, once people are in, many are happy to share that they beat the odds and made it, and of course, that you can too, presumably. Sometimes this can be really motivating to hear, and other times talking about those who succeeded at something you haven't yet succeeded at can really sting. Don't get me wrong. I am not encouraging competition between those who get in and those who don't, nor am I undermining how amazing it is to get into a highly competitive program. You absolutely deserve to celebrate that. Are you kidding? Believe me, the more people like us on the inside, the better this field will be. And I am more than happy to celebrate success stories, especially for those who are first gen or belong to the BIPOC community as they face so much more strife when trying to get in, and those successes make me genuinely incredibly happy. However, sometimes when you're going through it and processing rejection, hearing that someone didn't get into the program 48 times but made it on the 49th isn't as motivating as you might think. For many people, the idea of applying that many times is incredibly daunting and prohibitive. Applying is no walk in the park. It's costly, frustrating, time-consuming, and sometimes it can feel like your life is on pause and you're in limbo when you're working at these back-to-back, post-back research jobs, not quite advancing in your career the same way you would be if you were in school. You might be watching other people from your cohort move to other cities and start working on projects, and you could be reading their Just graduate school problems posts with a tinge of sadness because those things look like nice problems to have. If you're like me, you may even calculate how soon other people will be out of graduate school compared to you. I have friends who will be practicing when I have four years to go. I'm really happy for them, but I feel like that meme where Squidward is staring longingly at Spongebob and Patrick um, having a great time without them on the outside. In addition, these post-bac jobs, those are the jobs that you take um, usually as an RA just after you've finished your bachelor's um, and before you go to graduate school, or if you hadn't made it into graduate school, they're a good option. They are often not well paid enough to be able to do things like move out of your family home, and often one has to choose between making ends meet at a non-academic job or scraping by on an RA salary to make sure they look like a good applicant the next cycle. 
I've had to make the choice between living above the poverty line and keeping research on my CV by taking up more volunteer positions. And I am thankful to have even gotten these volunteer positions as they are very competitive, but they are often hard work that sometimes goes unappreciated, that you are doing for free, and you're expected to be happy about the situation and not complain even if you're, you know, being taken advantage by the um, MLM that is academia. It's also hard not to take a look at yourself as a 20-something living at home, not quite making it in the world the way they expected to after being a high achiever throughout school. There's also the fear that the older one gets, the older they will be when they graduate, and the older they will be when they feel like it's time to have a family or make other big decisions that they want to be settled in a stable career in order to make. So yes, hearing success stories can be incredibly motivating, but sometimes faced with very real barriers, motivation to keep trying must come from a stronger place. In doing my part to normalize reapplication, I am quite open with the fact that next year will be the fourth time I'm applying to graduate school. There are real reasons why reapplication is challenging for me, as it may be for you too. I have spent over, you know, $5,000 on applications so far, not even including airfare, a steep amount to pay for someone who is still paying off undergraduate tuition. This year, because of the pandemic, research positions, especially those that pay, have really dried up quite a bit in my area. And I have a real worry that I won't be able to have enough research experience this year to be considered a hardcore psychology-centered applicant, which is kind of awful that that's what we expect from people, especially with this hard year. Um, so yeah, rejections, they hit me really hard, having them come at very difficult points in time where I had lost a family member and on my birthday. And I have a real fear of facing those emotions again. Even with all the tools I have gained in dealing with rejection, it's not easy, and it never really gets easier to hear no. All you control is what you do next with your life. And speaking of what to do next, I wanted to bring on a new friend and very special guest, Sasha, to talk a little bit about her application experience being a multi-cycle applicant, and how she has become an excellent researcher in between applications. Hi, Sasha. Hi. How are you? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing okay. I'm, you know, dealing with the state of the world as everyone else's right Absolutely. now. Absolutely. So first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. I was personally very excited to have you on. Obviously, we've been interacting a little bit online, so that's been very exciting. Welcome. Yeah, yeah, I'm super excited to, to talk to you and hear your voice because I hear <laughs> your Twitter, so. <laughs> no, yeah, great to have you. So I guess starting off, could you tell me just a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you're currently involved in? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'm Sasha, in case anyone didn't get that. And I'm currently a research coordinator at the University of Denver in their psych department. Um, I work as the coordinator for two different labs, um, a clinical psych and a cognitive psych lab. Um, and I have my master's in clinical psychology from the University of Southampton in the UK and my BA in psychology from the University of Colorado Boulder. 
Um, and um, I guess my research interests uh, span looking at community-based recruitment, community-based uh, interventions, and specifically trying to figure out how to bring trauma-informed care and working on access to services with um, minoritized groups. Mm -hmm. So those kind of fit hand in hand, um, and that's where I'm hoping to kind of lead my research in the future once I get into grad school, fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> so um, do you mind going in a little bit more into what community-based research entails, kind of what that means and what you like about it? Yeah, um, so my history with uh, community-based research actually stems from my time as a crisis therapist in community-based mental health um, in Colorado. And uh, the reason that I became interested in it is because I noticed that um, a lot of the community mental health centers within the state didn't do a great job of communicating with each other in terms of um, how many people needed access to services, um, what the numbers looked like for each of these organizations, how many people they were serving. Um, and so it kind of started getting me to think about how many people are impacted by community-based services mm -hmm. um, and the majority of them um, are usually covered under Medicaid or Medicare and came from uh, marginalized populations. So what community-based research does is we try to reach those communities with our research by directly targeting and recruiting um, people that would probably utilize these services the most. From there, if you wanted to go further in depth about service utilization or more so about community-based programs in general, then you might partner with some of these community organizations to track all these things that you might be interested in. So whether it's psychopathology and the kinds of people that might be utilizing services, whether they have depression or schizophrenia, you might be interested in looking at um, how many people are actually using the services and maybe barriers that they might have to accessing services um, and things like that. So community-based uh, research spans a lot of topics, but the most important part is that you're going to be uh, working with um, people within the community directly. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I think access to care and the types of care needed, it's so important to to kind of overcome barriers and it's awesome that we have people looking into that and trying to fix this issue. So that's amazing. Um, yeah. So you mentioned that you did a, a master's in the UK. That is so cool. Can you tell me a bit about how you ended up there? Um, yeah, it's a really interesting story. So I studied abroad in undergrad, just like a lot of people did. And I chose to go to the UK and I fell in love with it. Um, and so after I graduated, I really wanted to go to do a master's. And I actually only applied to master's programs in the UK. I didn't apply to any in the US. And there's a couple reasons for that. Um, one, the programs there are usually only a year long. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was cool to be able to do just one year. And then also they have a lot of programs that are specifically masters for clinical psychology, which is obviously the topic that I'm really interested in. And so mm -hmm. um, it was just a really good fit. Um, and I, yeah, ended up applying and obviously getting in. Um, and because I already had studied abroad in the UK, I made a lot of friends there. So it was pretty easy for me in terms of like finding 
social connections um, while I was there. But obviously there's also hard parts about um, moving abroad and doing your degree there. So, but it was a really amazing experience overall and has helped shaped um, my, shaped my journey from, from getting that master's. Yeah, and I think a lot of people kind of write off going abroad to do a master's. Um, yeah. especially with programs like clinical psych here, where it's, it's so specific what you need to get licensure and things like that. So like, that's a great option. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I actually did, um, my degree was research based. So I still, um, I did a thesis. So I was mm. able to, um, I had a supervisor and we created a research, um, proposal and I executed it and wrote up a thesis. So it gives you a lot of good research experiences. Um, a lot of UK universities are research-based. So if you're looking to kind of strengthen your application, um, I actually think it's a really like awesome way to do that. No, yeah, that's that's so cool. I was, I was actually born in the UK, so I have a, a big fondness for it. It's an awesome space. Um, yeah. So speaking about your application, would you mind, I guess, giving me a brief overview of what the application process has been like up to this point for you? Yeah, so I just finished my second cycle applying. Um, my first year that I applied, I applied with um, six months of paid research experience um, and a master's degree in clinical psychology. And I applied to seven schools and I didn't get any interviews. Uh, granted, I did apply to significantly more competitive schools. Mm -hmm. um, so that cycle I felt was more so to kind of see what the process looked like, to understand what would be needed in my applications, to formulate a personal statement. So I almost felt like it was a kind of throwing my hat in the ring, but not really taking it as seriously. Um, and then this cycle, I applied to 15 schools, 14 clinical, and one counseling psych program. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, also didn't receive any interviews this year. So it's been, it's definitely been a rocky journey. Um, I did take the GRE in 2019. So luckily, um, I have that for five years for any future applications, but I didn't do that great. So um, I was planning on retaking it this year for the, the coming cycle. Sorry, this year I meant as in <laughs> I wanted to retake it in 2020. Mm -hmm. But due to COVID and all of the changes with the jury and having to take it at home, I just felt like it didn't, it wasn't really necessary, especially with many schools not requiring it anymore. That has been like my general journey with the two cycles. Yeah, um, as somebody who just completed my third cycle, um, I guess something I've personally been struggling with lately, and I think some people who listen to this podcast as well might be dealing with, how, I guess, have you dealt with the idea of going through multiple cycles? And how have you yourself kept that motivation to keep trying when as we all know, it's, it's a tough process. Yeah, I think the thing that's been keeping me going is the thought that I can one day affect structural and systematic change. And I think that getting a doctorate is my, I wouldn't say my only path, but the clearest path that I can take 
in order to make the biggest difference. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's all of the things that I've been doing in my current roles. I've just been thinking about how I could do this on a bigger scale and how much excitement that would bring me and how motivating it is to think about that one day I'll be doing my own research that will directly affect people in a way that I can personally see. That's been my motivation for specifically going after the doctorate. And in terms of applying multiple cycles, um, it does kind of go along with my long-term goal is to get a doctorate. But I think what's really been pushing me to get through these multiple cycles is people believing in me and thinking that this path is the one for me. There's mm-hmm. you know, so many people that offer their support and kind of understand that you're on the path that you're on for a reason. So I think it's important to find those kind of people that want to encourage your dreams and to understand how difficult this process is. And it's not just applying to any old regular graduate program. Um, And I think many people struggle with finding that, that group of people that can provide that specific support. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you are obviously have been in this interview and and, uh, on Twitter very open and honest and real about your experiences going through this. And obviously, that is something that I admire and appreciate so much. Um, I guess, why do you think it's important to have that honesty? And why do you think some people don't like talking about it? There's this expectation that getting into a PhD program is just a natural step for people after getting their bachelor's or master's that when you don't get in, it's almost like, well, what went wrong? Because this should be your natural progression. Um, There's so much expectation, especially once you've achieved your first degree or second degree that you're already a high achieving person. Therefore, you know, getting a doctorate should be easy for you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what's, led me to be so open is seeing other people being open about their rejections and struggles and realizing that it's much better to be authentic about this process and connect on that level than to pretend that everything is fine and not connect with the people that are kind of in the same boat as you. And that goes along with finding that group that's going to be supportive and understand how difficult this process is. I mean, I think that only comes with sharing your story and getting other people on the same page as you once they see that there are many other people that are experiencing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, as well, I know that uh, you happen to be a first-generation applicant. Can you explain what that is for our listeners? Yeah, so first-generation means that um, neither of my parents graduated with a college degree, um, and so I'm the first in my family to, to get a college degree. I'm also the first in my family um, to get a master's degree. And um, my parents are actually immigrants as well. So mm. I'm a first generation American as well. Um, and there's definitely barriers to this process as someone that has parents who, one, their first language isn't English, and two, they've never experienced an American um, education system before. Mm -hmm. So 
the biggest hurdle that I faced is just understanding the process of how you get into graduate school. Um, obviously, I knew that you needed good grades, but to me, good grades was just to impress my parents and to make them happy. And it wasn't for a longer term goal of going to get a master's or a doctorate. Um, and then kind of the other biggest hurdle is understanding the little caveats to the process. Like, for example, getting research experience. Many people begin getting research experience in their undergrad. Um, and I didn't realize that that was something that I had to do as part of my journey into getting to a program until my senior year of undergraduate. And by that point, it's a little bit too late to get involved with the lab long term. Mm -hmm. um, many labs don't want to take senior undergrads because they're going to graduate soon. It's a lot of time to train them. So I felt like I got started on the process a lot later than other people. Um, and also just things around the GRE and um, taking that and taking any standardized test for that matter, because that was a foreign concept to my parents. Mm -hmm. And having connections in the field and knowing how to reach out to make those connections. I struggled with even trying to figure out who in my undergrad for my professors, who I could use as my letters of rec for my master's degree, because I didn't understand that you know, I had to make certain, I had to have certain relationships with those professors in order to help with my materials for graduate school. Yeah, no, I, it's a very similar story for me in that I honestly had no idea how this process worked until very late into the game. Um, I feel like universities don't really prepare you in Psych 100 for, you know, what comes next. Um, and that's definitely something that I would love to change if I was ever a professor. Like we'd have, if it was up to me, we'd have a full class on how to get into clinical psych <laughs> um, because yeah. it's such a, it's such a ridiculous process. But um, I guess going through all this, where was it that you found support for first gen applicants? Honestly, the biggest place so far has been Twitter. And mm. I just jumped on the Twitter game in January of this year and before that, I didn't really feel like I had much mentorship. Um, a lot of the people that I either work under in my lab or work with, uh, they kind of already knew about going through the process and had already had the resources to get to where they were. So it was really hard for me to connect on that level. I mean, obviously, I got mentorship in, in other ways, but not specifically to the fact of maybe asking some dumb questions because <laughs> I'd never heard about something before. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think the biggest, the biggest thing has been social media um, and uh, the psyching out, psyching out uh, Twitter and Slack has been amazing too, which was created on Grad Cafe. And I feel like that's been my first chance at connecting with people that have gone through the same process from the perspective of being first generation. Yeah, I know. I, I love the people in Psyching Out, like, yes. especially their Twitter page. They're such an amazing group. And if anyone listening to this hasn't started a Twitter yet, do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Um, you definitely find, you know, your niche 
Um, and yeah, so I guess looking up from here, what does your kind of ideal educational and career path look like for you now? After this cycle, I started thinking about the best path forward for me. And I've realized that I need to expand out to applying to more counseling psychology programs, but also opening it up to community psychology PhD programs. My interests obviously are a really good fit for that program. And I think the biggest struggle that I have been having internally is just whether I'm prepared to have a career that could possibly involve not being able to practice as a psychologist. Mm. Um, And especially my history of already being a therapist and seeing what that looks like. I do have a part of me that's tied to doing clinical work and working with individuals to, to better their lives. But I kind of have to think bigger picture and get back to what I really care about. And for me, it's that systemic change, which I feel like no matter what kind of degree I go for, I'm hoping to end up doing that. So um, yeah, eventually getting into either a clinical counseling or community program and probably working with bigger organizations, um, whether that's nonprofits or the government, to create this change on the organizational level, which can then hopefully trickle down to the individual level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's tricky even for people deciding between things like experimental psych and clinical psych or social psych and cognitive psych, the choice between a career that lets you be in touch with um, practicing and doing the research, it's, it's hard. It's hard to choose. Now, those community psych programs, that, is that relatively new? Are there a lot of them? It is very new. I don't actually know how old some of these programs are, but there's probably only about 20 of them in the entire country. Oh, my um, goodness. Wow. There's <laughs> very little of them, so I don't expect competition to be any less so than clinical programs Mm -hmm. but on like the other side of it is that because they're so new they also have so much room to grow which is really exciting and I'm hoping that other schools kind of start recognizing that community psych programs would appeal to a lot of people that are probably have similar interests to myself and maybe more programs will open in the future. Yeah, no, I'm I'm laughing now because I just realized I have a very good friend who did a PhD in community psych and then went back and is doing his PhD in clinical now. (laughs) Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, well, you know what? You have such a a long future and there's no correct path. There's only what we do with the opportunities we're given. So, you know, very cool. And I'm very excited to see where you go. Um, If other people want to follow along, want to be in touch, where can they follow you? So you can find me on Twitter under Sasha Zabelski. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It was such a pleasure to talk to you, and I hope we'll have you back sometime. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited, and I'm happy to come back whenever you need to talk about any sort of failure. (laughs) 
Wow. Isn't Sasha great? I feel like I have definitely made a new friend. I know I was pretty honest about how I felt about reapplying at the start of this episode and that it was some kind of feeling of dread. And although this may be true, I've absolutely developed a healthier mindset when it comes to dealing with the big emotions that go along with that anxiety. I also have to thank you all. Because you listen and make this podcast possible, I keep putting episodes out. And the research and writing I did for this episode really made me reflect and create some concrete reasons for why I have to stay motivated on this journey. Facing the next cycle, there have been some things that have helped me, even just the slightest bit, feel more positive about what lies ahead. I want to share them with you in hopes that they help you too. Number one, there is no time limit or correct path dictated to us from any kind of clinical psych higher authority. Sure, you may see some paths more often than others, but the truth is everyone is on their own unique journey and we have to stop and ask ourselves, who is putting this pressure on us? Sometimes we're the ones who demand that we finish a program within a certain time frame, but truthfully, no one is going to chastise you if you don't or question your accomplishments up to date. Doing things a little differently isn't going to make you an academic pariah. One step off your ideal plan doesn't change your end goal and won't ruin everything. Recognize this time-pressured fear is internal and you'll feel a little bit better. Number two, you might be exactly what someone else needs in the future. A good friend told me that something that keeps them motivated is imagining the client that will need to hear what they have to say in the future. One day someone might need you in their court. Maybe it's your unique lived experience, your cultural knowledge, or even just how you see the world. Someone might need you and no one else, and I like to think that I'm doing it for them, whoever they are. Remember that one day you might have a client who is complaining to you that it's taken them three cycles and they still haven't gotten in. And you can tell them, hey, it took me four. Don't worry about being the person who applied multiple times. You get there in the end. Number three, it hurts and is frustrating because you care and understand the problems in the system that you can help fix when you have the power to do so. This is something I've told a few of you who have written me emails or sent me Twitter DMs. We feel so passionate about being rejected because we know it's what we want to do more than anything else. We care so much about the field, or else we would feel whatever about the whole thing. Caring and being invested are traits that create excellent researchers and psychologists. The hurt is just proof of that. Number four, it's less of a limbo and more of an early career experience. Everyone has first jobs that aren't necessarily at the level they wish they would end up at, It's a marathon, not a race, so everything you do now to build your skill set is valuable. Whether you're in grad school or not, experience is experience. I would like to thank Emma for emailing me that little bit of wisdom. Number five, you've done it before and you know the ropes. There will hopefully be fewer surprises this time around, especially since you've already experienced uh, pandemic applications, and you can start preparing earlier to make sure that you're showing your best side when you go forward. Number six, you have time to improve. If there was anything missing in your application or anything you could have improved on, you've got a whole year to do it. And if you go in more confident next time around, you never know what you'll land. Number seven, other options are out there and you have time to fully consider them or try something out to see if it's a good fit. Who knows what skills or talents you have that open new doors for you. Number eight, doing something else isn't failure. If your mind keeps going to the worst case scenario of never getting into clinical psych, You have to stop framing that as a personal failure. You tried one thing and you'll try others until you find the right thing. You've not failed and you're probably extremely smart and capable if you've come this far, so relax a little, okay? Number nine, 
If you weren't resilient in the past, well, you probably are now. Reapplication sucks, I know, but man, do you get resilient, and the ability to pick up yourself after falling down is something better learned now than later in your career when the stakes are higher. My end note today is addressing imposter syndrome. Here I am telling you how applications work, and I'm not even someone who has gotten to the other side of them. I have this little voice in my head that tells me I'm never going to make it, and I'll never be good enough, nothing I ever do will work, and the world will crash down around me. Maybe even that I am extremely silly for trying anything in the first place. This voice is, of course, more of imposter syndrome leaking through and feeding off my insecurity. I have been giving this voice a name. I call mine Amanda, and I picture her as a caricature of a mean girl in a movie. Every time I have one of those nagging thoughts, I tell Amanda to shove it, and believe it or not, it helps. There's also a saying I got from the podcast My Favorite Murder, I really like true crime, so sue me, that goes like this. Dumber people than you. I turned this into people with less talent and drive than you. And it means that people who are not as wonderful as you have done it and will continue to do it. I'm sure you've met one or two not-so-nice people in the field and wonder why they ever got into this caring profession in the first place. To that I say, people with less talent and drive than you have done it, so why the fuck not you? So that's it, folks. See you next week. Clinically Psyched Pod is a non-for-profit passion project by me, Cass. Music today was number one folk inspiration by Giovanni Brittany. Thanks.